0: Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann and with me today is Mick Finnis. He is the author of The Curse, The Colorful and Chaotic History of the L.A. Clippers. Mick, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. So we are going to talk about uh, your book and some of the uh, important moments, maybe a few of the not-so-important moments in the uh, L.A. Clippers uh, history. Of course, under the stewardship of Donald Sterling, they were known mostly for their ineptitude. And um, you know, I, I was a bit surprised after reading this book, which, by the way, is terrific. Highly recommend uh, anyone to learning about the the history of the team. It's just some really great overall NBA history. Checking out this book, there is just uh, so much good stuff. I was I was very pleased to um, read it, but I, I was surprised at. Obviously, there are the negative aspects of down Sterling's ownership that we know about the personally embarrassing behavior, the cutting corners, the bad draft picks, the bad trade decisions, the inconsistency, the feuds with players, the feuds with management, all that kind of stuff. But I was also a bit surprised about just how much the Clippers woes really could be attributed just to bad luck as well there was a lot of that in addition to all the you know the things that we know about bad ownership and bad stewardship of a team
1: yeah um i think that's one of the things that's really striking about the franchise and um maybe outside of um clipper actual clipper fans maybe that is something that's a, a lesser known sort of fact but through i mean through my time researching for the book you know what you uncover is that over the past 38 years thirty nine years there's been um, so many occasions where the the team looks like they've positioned themselves to um, you know become serious uh, maybe not championship contenders but put themselves in a position where they're ready to sort of build towards a championship. Um, and 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 that often was um, derailed by nothing more than, like you said, simple, plain bad luck. Whether it be um, through injury or other some other unforeseen circumstance.
0: Yeah, and um, I, you know, we'll, we'll get to it. But there were season-ending injuries to their best or second-best players for, I believe, five straight seasons from the late '80s to the early '90s. Um, so and and most of that, I mean, you know, that, that, there's always perhaps you know cutting corners in a training staff, and there there may be some things that are more than just luck in the situation. But you, you even considering that, that is just an extraordinary amount of um <laughs> again bad luck.
1: Yeah, and and even some, I think I think what you touched on, Jason, is uh, an interesting idea that you no one will ever be able to prove one way or another. But whether the um. Uh, unwillingness to sort of spend money on um, things like training and 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 um, medical resources, whether that in- impacted on the the bad run of injuries. But I mean, some of the injuries that happened, like even the way that they occurred, were such freak injuries. I mean, you had Norm Nixon injure himself playing softball in the off season at Central Park, and and at the time, Norm Nixon was one of the best two or three point guards in the NBA. And then you had Marcus Johnson injure himself when he, he grabbed a rebound, uh, made an outlet pass and, and turned to run up the court and ran into Benoit Benjamin's chest and, you know, and and and, ha- and suffered a, a really serious neck injury that, that effectively killed his career off. Um, so, I mean, those types of circumstances are, are just uh, are bizarre and, and, you know, can't be sort of explained.
0: Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. And there are, you know, it, it's I mean, I perhaps there is something to the idea where if you just create this atmosphere where there's so much negativity and there's so much angst and people aren't having fun or they're you know just worried about their position or what have you that stuff just kind of tends to happen a little bit more often because you know, just a negative attitude can you know kind of spread throughout um you know th- th- those types of attitudes can be you know contagious in a sense or just lead to bad circumstances i mean I, th- there may be something to that but still there is so much that and we're going to get to a lot of it that um is just quite baffling so even though i don't believe in you know universally in curses um but <laughs> this is about as close as i'm going to get that's for sure
1: yeah yeah and 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 the title i mean the title of the book's been something that's been um uh, you know, different fans of, of the team have contacted me, and some people are um, really like the title. Some people uh, dislike it. Um, I, I, I suppose the, the title that I, the reason why the, the title was selected was because I thought it was the best way of um, encapsulating the the experience of being a Clippers fan for the past. You know a uh, few decades. I mean, I I, I can't imagine. I, I personally don't believe in curses either um, I don't believe there's some sort of mystic force that's preventing the the franchise from doing well but at some point if you're a Clippers fan, you'd have to sort of Throw your hands up in the air in despair and and, and say well, why does this stuff keep happening to us? I think that mystic f- force was down sterling personally, but
0: you know mm. <laughs> Yeah <laughs> Um. So I let, let's start with Don Sterling because obviously he is here throughout most of the history of the team. He becomes the owner um I, I believe in the uh in the 81 season and uh taking over from um Irv Levin who had um who who was the owner he, he had been the owner of the Celtics and then um ha- had an exchange of franchises um, with the owner of the Buffalo Braves, John white Brown, to, and then took the Braves and moved them to San Diego. There was a complicated um, exchange of players and um, and so forth. So, so, so the first San Diego team is essentially a mix of old Celtics, a few old Braves, and some other uh, spare parts. And they're you know a pretty solid team for a couple years under Gene Shue. Um, Bill Walton comes there in 1980 in free agencies from San Diego. Uh, there's a big hoopla around that, despite the fact that Walton has you know, already missed, you know, a, a couple of seasons with um, injuries. Um, then Donald Sterling comes along after the, after the first season in which um, Walton misses most of it with injury, but there's still, I think you know, there's some decent talent there. There's some decent optimism. I still think that the Clippers can work In San Diego, Donald Sterling, you know, is not uh, his reputation has not preceded him yet. He was involved um, with a, uh, I believe, a real estate transaction with Jerry Buss. You know, obviously he's admitted to this club. I don't know what kind of vetting there was for um, sales in 81 or 82, but presumably, you know, he was allowed to buy the team. So there was not necessarily a, uh, a, you know, no big opposition to it at the time. But it doesn't take long for people to realize that Sterling really is a problem for the team and for the league.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, the one of the first, I mean, there's a couple of things that he did in his first season that, that sort of alerted people that, that this was maybe not your um, regular NBA owner. I mean, one of the first things he did was um, the the media campaign um, leading into that first season when he was the owner, uh, he, he placed himself front and center of that. You know, he, his, his picture was the one that was plastered on billboards around San Diego, um, which, I mean, I think shows sort of a, a real lack of understanding about why NBA fans would attend games. I mean, even if he was a really prominent public figure that people knew no one's going to buy a ticket to a game to see an owner sitting on the side of the court, so I think moving the focus away from the players and putting on, on his on his to start off his time was it was a very um, unusual decision. And then and then the, the but the, the the big move he made in the first season that that caused a lot of um, friction was um, he announced uh, at a at a luncheon that the the team was effectively tanking to try and secure the number one draft pick and. Uh, at that time, Ralph Sampson was a junior at Virginia. And, I mean, it's easy to look back now at Ralph Sampson and, and have a different sort of view of his career. But at the time when Ralph Sampson was playing college basketball, he was, you know, the, the most hyped um, college player since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, and so the idea that a team, uh, a franchise would deliberately lose games, at the time the Clippers weren't going to make the playoffs. So the idea that they would deliberately lose games – to try and um, put themselves in a position to draft Samson was was not unusual. But the thing that was unusual was an owner publicly declaring it and and what type of impact that would have on ticket sales. I mean, this is the early 80s. It's not the NBA. I mean, that's one thing that people need to really understand, that, you know, the NBA of 2017 compared to the NBA of the early 80s was two very different leagues. Um, And this was, you know, at the time the Clippers were averaging, you know, less than 5,000 fans to a game. So, um, you know, an owner coming out and saying, well, we're going to now start losing games and our aim is to finish last. It doesn't really place much incentive on the fan to part with their hard earned money to go and watch the team play. Um, and at the time, you know, the players and the team were really discouraged by him coming out and saying that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, his first season, I mean, that was probably the first catastrophic act in the in the Donald Sterling um, saga yeah
0: and um there were also you know immediately there were questions about you know he was running the um the, the team on you know very shoestring budget um uh, there's an anecdote in your book that i I think really illustrates uh, things well about uh, paul Silas had a lot of indignities um suffered upon him as clippers coach but i I think the, the biggest one uh you know, other than perhaps um losing his office to uh, uh to, to one of the executives there but I think the other one was Don sterling with having the the idea that he should tape the um, the players before the game, you know, thinking that he could just do that as as well as be a coach in the uh, for the team. Of course, not having understanding of, you know, respect for what the coach has to do and respect for the position that would obviously, you know, put him in if he were the guy who's forced to do that.
1: Yeah. And I think I mean, that that type of stuff happened throughout Sterling's tenure as, as the team's owner. And I think that reflects, I mean, you know, you you spot on, Jason. I mean, it reflects a real lack of understanding about what what takes place in a locker room of a sporting team and the idea that the coach would be taping ankles and also then moving into the position of being the coach and, and calling the shots during the game. I mean, that's a completely sort of um, ludicrous suggestion. And anyone who knows uh, basketball or any sport for that matter would, would, sit, would, would you know, not even consider that at a professional level. Um, But I think that also shows um, that that's one example of many throughout his time as owner shows um, that his the way he looked at his his ownership was very different than the the bulk of his peers, you know, most NBA owners, are, I I believe, buy the teams with the understanding that they may make money, they may lose money. That they buy the teams when they're in a position where they have so much wealth in other areas of their life that they don't need the their NBA franchise to necessarily be turning a big profit. And they buy the teams with the idea that they want to be successful and boost their public profile and be part of a winning organization. I I don't believe in from my time I've spent, you know, speaking with a lot of people around the franchise, I I formed the view that I think Donald had a very different view. And I think he thought that the the Clippers were expected to perform financially and return money for him at the same rate as his other investments. So I I believe that he looked at it in in the same way as he would look at cutting costs in, um, you know, a, a apartment building that he was renting out so he was looking at ways to boost revenue and cut costs and so no no idea was off the table for him and if that meant that the team was less successful that was probably it seemed to be less of a concern for him in terms of wins and losses and the, the bigger concern seemed to be in terms of um his profit margins mm-hmm.
0: and um you know one thing that i was surprised about was um the fact that the the talk of i mean even the announcement of uh, that he was going to be moving the team uh to Los Angeles actually took place a couple of years before he he did it i didn't realize that the, the, you know the fight with that i started i believe in the 82 offseason
1: yeah so i mean he he decided that he was going to move the team Um, and, and this is also another, 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 um, thing that sort of, um, it remained a constant throughout his time as the owner was his willingness to sort of buck trends and say, um, he didn't really care about sort of what were the accepted norms in the world of, in the NBA world. You know, he didn't look at it as like, this is what I'm meant to do as an NBA owner. He looked at it in terms of. The legal side of things, what I legally could and could not do as an NBA owner. So he, his idea was that he'd bought this um, asset, which, which was the Clippers. And if they weren't making a, enough money for him in San Diego, he was well within his right to pick the team up and move them to Los Angeles. Um, the same as you would any other asset that you had purchased But I mean, the NBA obviously is is a different, is a whole different um, entity. And there's the, you know, the, if you have all, if every team around the league just sort of moved to the the major sort of markets, you'd end up with, you know, eight teams in New York and eight teams in Los Angeles. So, um, and the NBA had bylaws around that. They had a a bylaw that said you couldn't move within 75, a 75 mile radius of an existing franchise without, getting permission from the ownership group of that franchise. But Donald Sterling, that didn't seem to phase him. He, he more seemed to ha- take the approach of I'm going to move the, the team and then we'll deal with the legal fight afterwards. I'm going to go on the front foot. I'm going to move the team. And um, the first time around he was unsuccessful. Um, and so that led to sort of this um, press conference where they, you know, tucked their tail between their legs and said, oh, we're actually staying in San Diego. Uh, but then there was no commitment to stay long-term. It was, we'll, we'll play the next season in San Diego. And he just sort of um, bided his time and then and then went for it again and, and did the same thing when he went, went for it again. He didn't go through um, sort of getting permission from the league to move the team. The, the second time when he moved, it was the same thing. It was like, we're going to Los Angeles. He announced it, and then he sort of sat back and said, now let's see what anyone's going to do. Who's going to challenge me? And, you know, after that, after the first attempt to
0: relocate, you know, the NBA had a investigation into, you know, his financial practices on the team. And um, he was very close to, you know, being kicked out of the NBA. I mean, at this point, there was. A talk of teams being contracted anyway um you know the, the situation in Cleveland was bad there were a couple other markets that were very bad you know, we're, were just a couple years from you know the NBA really turning around and being you know financially solid and then exploding but you know, at this time you know there were real struggles and you know I mean there there was a vote that was planned to you know to d- decide whether he would be able to stay in the league and uh that ended up getting postponed, and um, eventually he sort of pledged to change, and uh, yeah, they, they let it go. But I thought that was really interesting. I also thought it was interesting David Stern's role in you know preventing and keeping that you know vote from happening. I mean, not necessarily that he was you know actively campaigning in favor of Sterling and anything like that, but you know you mentioned him specifically as someone who um, you know was. Um, Pushing for you know, there to be you know kind of a you know a delay in that vote, I thought that was interesting. That you know we, the NBA was very close to getting rid of uh, Donald Sterling forever, but it would have you know him another thirty years in the league. I mean, there's so much could have been avoided, I guess, if they had uh, taken care of the problem then.
1: Yeah, and uh, if you look at it from the NBA's perspective, I guess you 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 you, you, you the idea of having to sort of force. Uh, forcefully take a franchise away from an ownership group or contract the league is not it would be something that they wanted to avoid so when when um when Donald Sterling sort of took steps to say originally he presented it as he was taking steps to um improve the position of the franchise to get ready for a sale and part of that was he, he took on the recommendation of employing Alan Rothenberg and um and and so the league saw it as, okay, he's he's gonna sell the team and he's he's getting sort of everything he's trying to put the franchise in the in the best position so that he can sell the team and get a good price for it. I mean a few months later when they went to the NBA and said, Look, we don't wanna sell and we've done all these things to improve, I mean I could see from the NBA's perspective why they would have said, Okay, here's an owner who's sort of came in, maybe didn't really understand the business um, and now he's sort of um, showing a willingness to sort of do things the the, way, the expected way. So, I mean, you can understand the NBA's uh, backing off from the, the, the having the vote to, to kick him out of the league. And, I mean, there's no way to have predicted what was to come and and after after Donald Sterling made that presentation to the league, the next few years he was very quiet. He did take a back seat. I mean, the the franchise continued to flounder during that time, but he did take a back seat during that time. Um,
0: yeah, and. Um I mean, obviously, yeah, obviously you're not going to know what happens in the future, but it, it is interesting that that came relatively close to happening. I mean, obviously there were concerns early and, you know, he may have backed off a few years and not been quite as much of an embarrassment. And certainly, you know, even when the revelations came in 2012, I mean, I, you know, a lot of that had been, um, you know, a public domain, obviously, you know, the discrimination lawsuits and uh, there was certainly a track record there, but even like sort of the level of, you, how vile, you know, some of his beliefs and some of you know what it, what he had done and some of the things that he had said over the years. You know, they may have been pretty well known in NBA circles, but they certainly, I, I think, the degree of it even surprised. Um, you know, people who were pretty, you know, closely observed the NBA and kind of knew what he was all about. So, you know, obviously impossible to know what was going to happen. But but it is interesting. Uh, Again, that was a a thing that was very, you know, reasonably close to, you know, um, being being reality. I want to transition a little bit to, um, you know, it's interesting because you know they were more of a middling team in those first few years they they, they weren't you know really uh, a a terrible team until um later 82 they had a really rough year but that was a year where you know Walton again missed the uh entire season they they had a lot of injuries so um and, and they ended up getting uh Terry Cummings out of that uh deal so but other than that you know they were more on the you know, before that, they were more just kind of a you know like a solid okay team. They had um, you know World Be Free early on as you know he was the second leading scorer in the NBA. Um, they did have some talent. That there was some promise, especially you know with the idea if Walton had been healthy. I mean, if they had you know if, there's a lot of what if Walton had been healthy, but they were not necessarily in a terrible position at first. It was sort of. Um, you know the next few years when things would get bad, but even when things you know really got bad from eighty two through eighty four, they drafted pretty well. They drafted Tom Chambers, they drafted Terry Cummings, as we mentioned. They they certainly had a young core of talent where th- you know things could have come together.
1: Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, the the front office in the early eighties did a fantastic job, I and mean, the you, you mentioned Chambers and Cummings, and then the the third the third draft after that they drafted Byron Scott. So I mean, there's three guys that go on to have you know tremendously successful careers, and they they had players like Ricky Pierce and Craig Hodges at that time as well. Um, all really young players. They had a really nice um, young core of players. Um, but as 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 was the um, consistent theme throughout the franchise's history, uh, that they didn't have trouble um, obtaining good young players. They always had trouble keeping them once they're first con- once their initial contract ran out right i mean in 84 they traded
0: chambers for uh or james donaldson i think actually before 84 i believe and uh right before the season they um ended up trading uh sven nader and byron scott for norm nixon and then in um before the 85 season the, the huge trade was uh Terry Cummings, Ricky Pierce, and Craig Hodges to the Bucks for uh, Marcus Johnson, Junior Bridgman, and Harvey Ketchings in cash. And, you know, one of those trades may have been defensible. I mean, um, you know, Norm Nixon was an all-star point guard, really good. You know, okay, you know, you trade Byron Scott to get him in, that, that, that might make some sense, you know. Marcus Johnson was, you know, a, a really a tremendous player. He was he was older. He was 28, but, you know, you could have expected, you know, maybe five good years out of him before things retired. So, you know, you make one of those moves, it's, it's kind of understandable that the other talent in that Cummings trade was way too much. But I I can see, you know, Cummings wanting to leave the team. I, you know, I, I can see some of the thinking, you know, but... It's more the collection of moves in the end, the constant, you know, going young for old and trying to get, you know, local scar- stars that were at the would help the box office, which, you know, it, it is certainly still kind of a consideration with where the business of the NBA was at the time. Um, those things obviously added up and, um, and and obviously the thing that, you know, was overshadowing everything was, you know, Bill Walton still being under contract um you know missing both the 81 82 seasons uh playing 33 games in 83 and then 84 actually you know playing I believe almost 60 games and finally you know being relatively close to a full-time contributor but at, at that point of course he'd obviously um his skills had diminished but you know they I, I guess the overall overall reaching point is that you know there were things here that they um you know there was talent here there were good players there was um, you know, if things had just been a little different, if they had just, you know, made w- w- one of those trades instead of, you know, three or four of those trades, you know, things could have been very different. But unfortunately, obviously, we know the way that things worked out.
1: Yeah. And it's kind I mean, it's kind of maybe, maybe a good comparison is the sort of, um, you know, post Patrick Ewing, New York Knicks in, in that, that idea of just, constantly looking to top up your talent level with with guys who are sort of in the later later stages of their career um, with and the idea being like we get one or two more good players we can get back to the playoffs or this will help us at the box office so like you said i mean all those trades made sense i mean look in hindsight they're all bad trades but you know you can see the logic at the time i mean james donaldson went on to be an all-star he was a young player bill walter was injured you know, they got a first round draft pick out of it as well. Um, you know, Byron Scott was an unproven rookie. Norm Nixon was, like I said, you know, you could make a case that he was the second best point guard in the, in the NBA at the time, second to, to only to his teammate of Magic. And, you know, Norm Nixon played two excellent seasons for the Clippers um, before he got injured. You know, Marcus Johnson was a, 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 at a time was regarded as one of the league's, you know, best five or six players. And he was still 28 at the time when they traded for him. And that was just when the franchise had moved to Los Angeles. And Marcus Johnson was, you know, born and bred in LA and, you know, former UCLA player and really uh, beloved figure in, in Southern California. So like you said, I mean, those deals seem to make sense on one level, but the the sort of put them all together and the cumulative effect was that they really crippled the the team because, you know, as the, the older players and then a lot of them became injured and they also traded away – other little assets along the way, first-round draft picks and other sort of bench players that were um, that went on to be really successful players. And it reminds me a lot of what the Knicks did, you know, where they would bring in Penny Hardaway and then bring in Stephen Marbury, And you know, just like constantly looking to sort of um, look for a quick fix rather than what, what we know now, what's sort of the prevailing view in the NBA now, which is that – you know, you you can't, you can't build a championship contender on the fly and you've, you've got to take the long-term view and you've got to do it through the draft and you've got to develop players. Um, and that was obviously the opposite of the approach that the Clippers were taking.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I think one player that typifies the Clippers in the latter half of the eighties is Benoit Benjamin, um, a guy who had potential, you know, had good size, you know, had some good skill. Um, but I, it really l- lacked the, um, you know, the, the interest in working hard, the interest in, you know, bettering his game and also had, um, the kind of ego where you didn't necessarily think that he had to improve. Do, do you think it's a you know, pretty fair summary of, uh, Benoit Benjamin?
1: Yeah. And and I think, um, I think the NBA NBA history is is filled with um, especially centers that maybe um, you know scattered throughout NBA history. Are that there are these players, and they're particularly you know in in terms of big players, players that maybe don't especially love playing basketball, but have sort of fallen into playing professional basketball because of their their physical attributes, you know, namely their size and. You know, that's that's the impression that I got with Benoit that he was someone that didn't really have a passion for the game. Um, and um, you know, d- at college he was able to succeed. Um, just through his sheer advantage he had over over the players he was playing against. But when he got to the NBA, it was you know, um, his his um, ability to work and put the time in off the court and learn from other players was obviously going to be pivotal. Uh, to his success or failure, uh, because he was competing against, you know, the Hakeem Elijah ones and 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 David Robinsons and Patrick Ewing's at the time, and 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 he wasn't prepared to do that. Um, you know, he he didn't have the the work ethic. You know, he he had constantly battling with his weight, and you know, constantly seemed uh, have an attitude problem, but. Um, th- there, were, there were definite glimpses throughout his career. It's not just Clipper fans who would say, oh, look, Benoit Benjamin had the potential to be a really good player. You, you could see little windows throughout his career where you know, he had a month here or a two-month stretch there where he played really well and was able to compete at a really high level with the best of the best, but was never able to do that for a consistent period of time. Yeah, I uh, I listened to a podcast,
0: the NBA Trades podcast with uh, Bob Witsch, who was later the you know the general manager of the Asonics where uh, Benjamin played, and I think he referred to he, Benjamin made Joe Barry Carroll, of course, uh, who was famously nicknamed Joe Barry cares, made him look like the hardest worker in the world. So that <laughs> gives you a sense of how bad uh, Benjamin was as, as, as in terms of his work ethic and drive and all that kind of stuff.
1: Well, one I mean one of the interesting sort of stories that, you know, I found in researching the book was the the time that Benoit Benjamin and and Don Chaney had a physical altercation at training. And, I mean, Don Chaney is, you know, one of the sort of, um, you know, like a legend of the game. You know, this is is the only guy to be a teammate of Bill Russell's and Larry Bird and he's a championship winner as a player and a coach of the year and, um, you know, a a, a guy that was sort of... um, uh, very well respected in NBA circles. And when I spoke, when I interviewed Don, you know, he he said that, you know, no, never, he's, he's a pretty sort of mild-mannered type guy, um, Don Chaney. And he said to me that, you know, no one was able to push his buttons in the way that Benoit Benjamin was. And uh, and, and, at a, and at a practice session, what happened was, you know, uh, Benoit had walked in, had, had arrived late. Um, and then instead of sort of, arriving late and then quickly sort of rushing in and and joining the group and apologizing. He just sort of sauntered in half pace and sat himself down on the edge of the court and slowly sort of did up his shoelaces. And, and Don just said, you know, he lost it. And, and um, they ended up having a, a a screaming match that, that progressed to the point where Don Chaney went at Benoit Benjamin, lunged at him and, and attempted to choke him and had to be restrained by other players. And, you know, I spoke to lots of players who were there at the time as well, and who remembered it. And the thing that they remembered that was sort of stood out for them the most was that how out of character this was for for Don Chaney. So that I mean, I think that gives you an idea of what it was like to to work with um, Benoit Benjamin. And and you know, Don Chaney's job, his job security, his financial future was linked to Benoit Benjamin. He needed to get the best out of this guy, and here he was, you know trying to to coach him and it, and it was you know like a losing battle so the 86
0: season um the clippers had a pretty good collection of talent you know we talked about marcus johnson cedric maxwell had come over from um the celtics for the in the bill walton trade you know norm nixon james donaldson um and you know Michael Cage, you know up and coming young player, you know some other pretty good talent there. But one um, emerging star they had before suffering a terrible knee injury was uh, Derek Smith. And you um, did a lot of good description of you know the kind of the potential that Derek Smith had, how he was really you know, showing himself to be a, you know, emerging great star, you know, going toe to toe with Michael Jordan, you know, just, uh, overcame a lot. I know Rainis Lattice of the, uh, handle podcast also, you know, did a, a great look at uh, his career as well, but, um, you know, someone who's kind of been forgotten in the annals of NBA history to his lack of longevity and, you know, he, how he wasn't able to kind of re, um, You know, after the knee injury, he came back and played a few more seasons but was, you know, unable to do anything like that again. But, uh, you you know, another of – I I guess the beginning really of just a horrific string of luck of these, you know, really talented players going down with uh, terrible injuries and, you know – Sinking
1: the hope of the franchise down with it. I mean, Derek. Derek's a really fascinating story, and you know the type of guy that that, that um, you know made me really interest, interested to pursue this project and to write this book. Because, as you said rightly, you know, besides um, um, fans that were sort of around at that particular time, and maybe even fans that were you know following the Clippers would know him from that time. Maybe even other fans in the league would be unaware of. You know, what an interesting sort of rise he had to, um, you know, at the end of his first season with Golden State, so he was the second-round draft pick. He was seen as a bit of a tweener. He was seen as like, well, he's got a skill set of a power forward, but he's kind of the size of a small forward, and where does this guy fit? And the coaching staff at Golden State never really knew how to use Derek, and at the end of that season he was waived, and – I mean really he was out of the league uh he worked hard that summer on trying to sort of reinvent his game and and trying to develop his perimeter skills but he was no one would give him a, a shot like he was he was short of short of a favor the the, the thing that kept his career alive was um Jim Lynham had just been made the coach of the Clippers and he Jim was previously a, a assistant coach with Portland and um, Stu Immen, who was a, a executive at Portland, asked Jim Lynham for a favor and said, can you just put Derek Smith on your summer league team? And um, Jim Lynham didn't want to do it. I spoke with Jim and he said – because it was his first year coaching, he sort of over, he overrated the importance of the summer league and he was really sort of obsessive about having the summer league team work in a particular way he wanted them to work. And, and, and he just saw it as, I don't want this guy coming from the outside and messing up the team. And, and so he said to Stu, I don't want, I don't want to take this kid. And Stu said, you can just put him on the roster, let him, let him practice with you. You don't even need to put him into your games. And this goes to show I mean this story shows how close he was to not playing in the NBA again. And from there, Jim put him on the team. you know he impressed Jim and he worked his way up where he was the star of the summer League. He earned a spot on the Clippers roster. And Jim said that he knew in his first season that he should be starting Derek Smith, but because it was so unconventional because Derek was such a low lowly thought- of player that he didn't have the sort of courage of conviction to follow through and to put him straight in the starting lineup. And it and it was only when there was 20 games to go in that first season that Jim promoted Derek to the starting lineup, and straight away you could see that this guy was, you know, from, from non, phenomenal talent. Um, you know, he he was he was um, big and strong, and he was playing at shooting guard now, and opposition shooting guards just couldn't handle his physicality. And then by the next season, you know, he was a you know scoring mid 20 points a game and was a fringe all star and you know, was really sort of um, uh, gaining attention around the league. And then his third season with the Clippers, you know, he started off playing, you know, fantastic basketball. He was named Player of the Week at the start of the season. So, I mean, Player of the Week essentially means you're the best player in the world for that week. And then not long after that, a couple of games after that, he he did his knee and it was kind of the beginning of the end for Derek's career. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So eighty-seven and eighty-eight are uh, pr- pretty deep lows for the uh, Clippers. Uh, Elgin Baylor comes on as the uh, general manager, not not the low, but the uh, the eighty-seven season. Um, Twelve and seventy record, eighty eight season, seventeen and sixty five. Uh, we've already sort of got into you know all of the injuries that were suffered during that time. Just the talent was um, not there. They had lost their uh, draft picks, I believe, in um, in eighty seven. They did not have a first rounder there. Uh, however, they uh, were able to draft uh, Danny Manning out of Kansas in the nineteen eighty eight draft, and he uh, had, had led Kansas to a national championship. Uh, it was you know, a, a player with tremendous versatility and skill as a forward, you know, looked like absolutely a future star in the league. And then uh, 26 games into his rookie season in 89, uh, he would suffer a, uh, a torn ACL and the Clippers would lose, um, extend their streak of uh, seasons with 50 or more losses to eight straight years.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, Danny's – I mean, the the consensus view is that Danny was never the same player after that knee injury. Um, So no one will really know how good Danny could have been, but he was leading into that 88 draft. He was the equivalent of um, Tim Duncan or Shaquille O'Neal or LeBron James, one of those draft picks that was – you know, a consensus number one pick and, and one that was considered to be, you know, if you landed the number one slot in the '88 draft, you were lucky because you got yourself a blue chip, you know, surefire, you know, future all-star, future all-NBA player. Um, and as you said, I mean, he had, he had first he missed a whole lot of gains because was this really um, a hostile sort of contract negotiation between his agent, Ron Grinker, and the Clippers. And then he finally joins the team and starts working himself into, um, you know, peak form and he's starting to play really well. And then, you know, after 20-something games, he does his ACL and and that's the end of his rookie season. So, yeah, really, really sad sort of story. Um,
0: He does recover and he is a very good player for the Clippers over the next few seasons as they, they start to accumulate some um, young talent. Um, In the 1989 draft, they draft uh, Danny Ferry, number two overall, uh, but Ferry, as you you talk about a lot in the book, you know, every year there is, you know— signing your number one draft pick for the most part, even during that time, you know, a fairly routine matter. There were not the types of rookie-scale contracts where you were kind of, you know, basically locked into a salary. There was more negotiation than that, but for most teams, you know, they would get it done in a fairly timely matter. But, you know, every, almost every year before this, um, as you mentioned with Manning and with others, there was this long negotiation um, that would happen. And with Danny Ferry, he was not interested in playing for the Clippers. You talk about, you know, he uh, eventually signs in a team with Italy and that uh, leads to um, Elgin Baylor um, trading him to the Cavaliers for Ron Harper, who had been um, uh, not in legal trouble, but had been uh, had some friends of his or associated with some people who were in legal trouble and they were worried about some blowback from that and also got a pair of first round draft choices, in that deal, it actually ended up being a really good uh, trade for them, but um, they it, it took a couple years for that team to gel. They also, um, were able to uh to get Loy Vaught, who was a you know a pretty stalwart player for them, and um, ended up uh ended up getting Doc Rivers as well. And it finally in the 90 and 92 and 93 seasons they finally became a respectable team in 92 they broke i believe uh, a a 15 year playoff drought and uh finally were able to uh you know be, be be more than the joke they had unfortunately been for you know for for a long time
1: yeah i mean that 92 season is is fascinating because here here is what sh- uh should be a sort of really good news portion of of the clipper story but even in that season where they where they finally break through and make the playoffs, I mean they had three different coaches during that season. They started off with Mike Shula, and you know the 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 atmosphere around the team when Mike Shuler was coaching was uh, particularly toxic. Uh, the players he had completely sort of lost the playing group, and you know some of the players I spoke to would spoke about. Um, how that the team had become sort of openly defiant of Mike Schuler, you know, in a timeout, he would give them an instruction to do something, and they would go on the court and deliberately do the opposite of what they've been told. Um, so you know the the clipper management were left with very little choice but to but to um, get rid, to terminate Mike Schuller. And then you know the assistant coach Matt Calvin took over, and he 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 wanted the head coaching job, and he saw himself as being ready after being an assistant for a number of years for the head coaching job, uh, and he coaches the team for two games. But in the meantime, uh, the team's management is meeting with Larry Brown, who had also been fired during the season in in highly unusual circumstances which i detail in the book from san antonio and then larry brown becomes the first person in nba history to be the head coach of two different franchises in the same season um so yeah i mean that and then and then that playoff series where they play utah which is a really um fantastic playoff series that playoff series is also disrupted by the la riots which came as a result of the rodney king verdict so You know, what 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 would otherwise have been a really um, positive sort of time in the franchise's history was still had a lot of sort of turmoil happening behind the scenes.
0: And um, they have another pretty strong season in 93. They go 41 and 41. Uh, Danny Manning becomes the first Clippers to make the all star team in seven seasons. Uh, before the season, they trade uh, Doc Rivers, Bo Kimball, and Charles Smith, who had been another key young contributor to, for the Clippers, uh, for uh, Mark Jackson and uh, Stanley Roberts. Um, the as we mentioned, the team has another. You know, they they give the Houston Rockets a you know pretty tough series, though they end up losing in five games. Um, and then uh, again the team uh comes apart pretty soon larry brown leaves the job uh as larry brown is want to do after the uh, 93 season and then in 94 the um clippers are another situation where um danny manning is about to be a free agent ron harper is about to be a free agent uh a lot of players uh, and the Clippers would have these seasons throughout their history where they would just seem to have an uh, unusual number of guys who were going to be free agents in one season. And as you talk about in the book, and it's certainly been talked about in other places, that's usually, uh, you know, players at times certainly have incentives to go after their own numbers at the expense of the team, particularly if the team, you know, is already struggling and, uh, and the Clippers absolutely do that uh, in the
1: 94 season under Bob Weiss. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is a common theme throughout the franchise's history. And I think that um, NBA history has shown that if, if you have one player, you know, one sort of marquee player heading into a contract a free agency, so, you know, a contract year for them, that can be a positive, you know, that can really motivate the player to to play well and to sort of show show his own team and other teams around the league, you know, that he's worth sort of a big contract in the upcoming off season, but I, I, I can't think of any example where you've had six or seven of your top players heading into free agency in the same season where that's worked out to be a positive. And, you know, th- that, happened throughout, um, Clipper history, but that, I mean, that 94 season when Bob Weiss coached the team, um, that's one of the sort of more farcical seasons in NBA history that they had, they still had a very good player, a very good playing group. I mean, you know the the season before, where they had been eliminated by Houston, I think I think the general view is they underachieved that year to only win forty one games. Um, I mean, they had a they had a very talented roster, and then the next season, what was essentially the same playing group won twenty seven games. Um, and you know they just seemed to reach a point where they they didn't care anymore. Um, about Um, they were so sort of discouraged by the, what was happening off the court with the franchise that people just wanted to get out of, get out of there. Um, and, and then that's what happened.
0: Yeah. And and you write about how, you know, Harper was really adamant about not being happy in that situation, you know, spoke out to the media uh, often and, um, and Manning, you know, there, the. Clippers had come close to trading him to the Heat and then sort of uh, pulled the offer at the last minute. And uh, eventually they did trade Manning for uh, Dominique Wilkins. And, you know, we've heard at least I've heard a lot of, of course, how for Hawks fans, you know, Dominique being traded. That was, you know, a, a very emotional for thing for them, for him being such an important player in their franchise history. But Manning, you know, at at that point was probably the best player in in, in Clipper history. And, you know, that that, that certainly must have been bittersweet for Clippers fans on that side to have, you know, the, the guy, you know, who they who looked like, you know, initially might be the franchise savior to leave under those circumstances, you, you know, certainly led them to their, you know, best success they'd ever had, limited as it was. Um, but that, that certainly must have been, you know, that the feeling of losing him, even though I'm sure that there may have been some interest, you know, in getting a player of Dominique's caliber, even at his advanced age. But that certainly must have been, you know, it's had, had some emotional
1: wallet for Clippers fans. Yeah. and, and But I mean, uh, one of the, you, you, the, the If you, if people are going to evaluate the trade of Danny Manning, I mean, it wasn't so much a decision as to whether to trade him or not. I mean, via his agent, Ron Grinker, Danny Manning had made it abundantly clear that he was leaving at the end of that season. So that the the choice was to, to hold on to him for another few months and, and then watch him leave as a free agent or to try and get something in return. And it was the exact same case with Charles Smith. When Charles Smith was traded to New York, I mean, the, Charles Smith was a, a crucial piece for that team. Um, you know, he he played the centre position and he allowed, the, he allowed the team to play a very up-tempo pace because he was able to defend bigger post players, but he was fast and agile. And that's the way that Larry Brown wanted the team to play. And it wasn't as if it was for a tactical reason, like we're going to trade Charles Smith because we think that Stanley Roberts is going to um, be better for us. It was a simple fact that Charles Smith had made it very clear that he was leaving. And he was going to play the, this final season of his contract and he was leaving. So with with a lot of these trades that they were made uh, almost with the loaded pistol to Aldrin Baylor's head, where he knew that the, the option of it wasn't evaluating keeping a player versus trading him. It was um, trying to get something in return for uh, an asset that had made it, who, who had made it very clear they were about to leave. Um But, yeah, the loss of Danny was really hard for for Clipper fans because, you know, he was a back-to-back all-star. He'd led them to two playoff appearances. He was a very prominent high-profile player that um, Clipper fans had really grown to sort of love. And the departure of Danny Manning, you know, really signaled the end of that um, sort of uh, positive period of the early 90s so looking at the
0: late 90s um mostly struggles there they win 17 games in 95 then they trade antonio mcdice number two overall and that looks like uh you know he was one of the guys with you know the really highest amount of potential uh in that draft and then they make a, a a pretty puzzling trade with the uh uh, with the nuggets for uh, Rodney Rogers uh, the rights to Brett Barry and um and Bison Dele and um you know that was perplexing I think even at the time and uh you know the, the, those clip players actually played well Brett Barry didn't really play well for the clippers he he would go on to better success uh in his career um but but that was one where like we talk about a lot of these transactions like like at the time they don't necessarily look like they were, you know, completely disastrous. I mean, they were either trades where like, like you said about like the Charles Smith, for instance, it's like they they were kind of forced into that maybe from some bad decisions, but they weren't absolutely like, it it wasn't like everything that Elgin Baylor did was incompetent. He, In fact, he did a lot of things that were savvy and and, and incompetent in in certain periods of the team. But this one uh, honestly is, is hard to figure from any perspective.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was asked in another interview, um, you know that was the worst sort of transaction in Clipper history, and you know I was you know trying to scan through there's so many different things going through my mind, and after the fact I, I came to the conclusion that that was the single worst um, trade transaction transaction in the history of the franchise, and as you said Jason, it, it's hard even at the time you know the 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 coverage of that trade was completely scornful of it, and I I remember there was a press conference at the time where Bill Fitch, who was the coach of the team. Kind of said to the media members like there's no point trying to explain to you what we've done because you won't understand it Um, Well, I mean he's right the media didn't understand. I don't think anyone around the league understood it Um, uh, And mcdice was a was um, a fantastic player and you know Even his career now we can look back at that and we probably don't fully appreciate how good he was when he was drafted because he also suffered an injury after his first six or seven seasons but prior to getting injured, you know, McDice was on track to sort of be a, a regular All NBA um, selection, and and to trade him for, you know, a, essentially it's kind of three spare part players, and they're all quality players, but no 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 player in there that was capable of being a franchise player. Um, it was perplexing to say the least. Yeah. The 1997
0: team actually does make the uh, playoffs um, despite having a less than uh, stellar uh, record, a 36 and 46, and, you know, not really having a a star player on that team. You know, a couple of the guys who, you know, really emerged there, you know, we already talked about, um, we already talked about Rodgers and, um, uh, Brett Barry had a, a pretty small role on that team. Uh, Lori Vaught, he played well. Uh, Malik Seeley was on that team. Uh, Bo Outlaw, uh, young Lorenzen Wright. And, uh, you know, one guy you talk about is, uh, Derek Martin, who was a, you know, five foot 11 guard, but really, um, you know, was able to he kind of stood out for the Clippers, you know, gave them some, uh, strong play. And, um, you know, this was definitely, you know, very unlikely uh, playoff team. And uh, I, I guess, you know, credit to uh, them pulling together and, you know, the the, the last really great uh, coaching job of the uh, legendary Bill Fitch.
1: Yeah. And um, yeah, you're right. A very unlikely playoff team. Um, I think Lloyd Voigt was their leading scorer and he averaged somewhere around 15 points per game. And you know, it's not it's, – there's no sort of name player in, in, in their entire roster. Uh, I think uh, Derek Martin is um, a really interesting player for them. He, he was someone that, you know, was, um, again, out of the league, you know, could barely make a CBA roster. And, and the interesting thing about uh, Derek Martin's journey was he, he then sort of went away from playing competitive basketball – and went and played on the um, Magic Johnson's traveling team and Magic was traveling around the world with a bunch of NBA veterans and some young, younger CBA level players and playing exhibitions all around the world. And he he came to Melbourne and played here down in Australia. And I remember going and, and watching him play against our national team and, uh, you know, Derek Martin was was played on that team with Magic, and if you think about it, what what a fantastic apprenticeship to be uh, traveling with the the you know arguably the greatest point guard of all time and learning from him. Um, and then you know he, he was ready to come back and have another try, and he got himself a ten day contract, and then you know, eventually uh, secured himself a permanent roster spot. So he arrives at the Clippers and he's, he's thought of when he arrives as being a third-string point guard. Um, you know, the idea was that Pooh Richardson and Brent Barry were going to be the, the primary options that Bill Fitch is going to go with. But by the middle of the season, he he had grabbed the starting job and had a couple of really good games against some of the league's best players. And, you know, he ends up being a, a really prominent player for – a Maybe the most unlikely NBA playoff team of all time.
0: So after that, they they are uh, swept in the uh, playoffs. The '98 season, another struggle for them, 17 and 65 again, and this leads to the 1998 draft where they uh, select uh, Michael Olynykandi um, uh, first overall, and this is draft pick has been you know quite maligned. Uh, afterward in retrospect is one of the worst number one overall draft picks of all time and he certainly had his struggles and you know it, it, it was not um you know a, a great pick by any means but you do make a, a compelling case of first you know when you look at his background the fact that he had not played organized um basketball before his college years and really had a limited track record of that The fact that he was able to contribute at all on the level that he did, you know, a having a, you know, being a decent, um, you know, a a decent player for a few seasons and, you know, contributing on some level, obviously not a star, obviously, you know, a but, but but was a solid enough role player. The fact that he was able to contribute on that level is quite remarkable. And it, as you you know point out in the book, if he had been drafted you know eighth overall or something like that, he, you know he he would not be thought of in these terrible terms. He'd just be like, okay, you know he, he was that level of player. He was fine. It's remarkable what he was able to accomplish based on his experience. But the fact that he um, was drafted where he was, um, and, and probably the, you know for the team that he was drafted for, you know kind of puts him on this list of you know awful draft choices when there's much more to it than that
1: yeah the the, the michael oliver candy story was was a real real pleasant surprise for me in, in the course of doing this research because you know as as you said jason you know michael oliver candy is universally regarded as you know just being a draft bust and his career in the nba having been a failure and um, there's so much more to him than that. I mean, he's a really interesting guy. He, 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 at the age of 20, he decided he was going to play in the NBA and he was living in London at the time and, you know, picked up the phone and, and, and started cold calling, uh, American colleges, um, and saying hey you know I'm, I'm a seven foot guy living in england and i want to come play for you and you know, he called some of the uh, more prominent schools like duke and georgetown and he couldn't get a coach on the phone they, they kind of didn't take him seriously so then he changed tact and he said okay i'm going to um open up this this guidebook of of um u.s colleges at a random page and plonk my finger down uh, with my eyes closed and wherever it lands i'm going to call that school and so he ended up landing on the university of the Pacific picked up the phone and called university Pacific and said, Hey, you know, I want to come over and play for you guys. And, um, I spoke to a number of the coaches at um, Pacific who worked with Michael while he was there. And, um, they said that, you know, one of the things that was really remarkable about him was how driven and how hard he worked and how focused he was on, on this goal of making the NBA. And part of what I think made that goal achievable was that he was completely unaware of what a, a ludicrous goal it was. Like he 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 arrived in America and, and um his first practice session, he, he just showed a complete um lack of exposure to the game of basketball he didn't know how to catch a ball and pivot he didn't know how to make a layup he didn't understand the rules of the game this is someone who had literally never played a game of organized basketball in his life and he's on the campus of a division one school and he spent much of his first season at pacific trying to bluff his way through um you know pretending that he knew more about the game than what he did and there's stories about you know uh you know you know one time he he was fouled in a game and made a basket and so he was sent to the free throw line for for one bonus free throw and after he shot the first free throw and missed the opposition team grabbed the rebound and started running down court and Michael was left standing at the free throw line wondering where his second when the why he was not being given a second free throw attempt i mean this is a, a amazing sort of journey to go from that in year 1 to the end of year 3 being the number one overall draft pick but um, obviously his time at the Clippers didn't work out. And it seems to be that the Michael Oliver Candy that, that played in college was uh, the the same attitude, that same sort of peak-headedness, drivenness to say, I'm going to do this and I don't care what anyone says. That that served him really well while he was at Pacific. And um, I believe that, that that same attitude was partly to do with his lack of success in the pros.
0: Yeah, and you talk about him... You know, working with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, on a couple separate occasions, and it it going reasonably well the first time, and um, you know showing some signs of improvement there. And then he's brought back, you know, a year or two later, and there being a real um, you know difference of opinion between them of you know of of all the candy. Um, not saying you know telling kareem you, you know don't criticize me in front of anyone you know in, in front of my teammates and that kind of thing which you know, basically you know he's working with him with the other team he has to you know <clears throat> made it impractical for him to really be able to do anything with him and you know kareem's the guy who can be who has had difficulty getting along with others at times too so you know that there may be more than one side of that story but I, you know it is uh, that, that you can see the other side of that coin of being so um driven and so focused and so single-minded and and accomplishing what he did you know just with his will and his desire where the other side of that coin is that you know you can believe in yourself too much or not being willing to listen or you feeling you've achieved enough and don't need to listen anymore and then it leads to you know it kind of stalling out despite again you know um him you know being a solid player for his career you know being okay certainly um you know compared to the you know litany of all the nba players who have been out there you know he was you know productive enough had a decent enough career
1: yeah uh, and I and I think um you know I think that I, I, I in my opinion I believe that Michael saw the becoming the number one overall draft pick as the finish line rather than the start of his professional career right which is understandable in a way I'm I'm, I'm not saying it's the way I would have approached it but I mean he he worked so hard it was such an unbelievable journey to go from where he was to becoming the, the number one overall draft pick. I believe that at that point he kind of looked at it as like, well, now I've made it. I've, I've got a contract for millions of dollars. I'm playing in the NBA. And rather than sort of seeing as, well, now I've got a, another mountain to climb and this mountain is going to be even bigger than the previous one, um, you know, and, and and in fairness to Michael, I mean, he joined a team that, you know, was devoid of veteran leadership that, you know, didn't have a sort of strong culture, um, you know, didn't have a, a coaching staff with a lot of sort of authority. And, um, you know, it, I, I believe his career would have panned out differently if he was drafted lower. I also believe it would have panned out differently if he hadn't been drafted by a different organization, um, you know, but – you can never we'll never know that one way or the other
0: yeah but there are as we've kind of talked about there are so many outcomes with the clippers with who they draft or how things go with trades where it literally ends at the worst it possibly could end. Like you know, if you look at all the different outcomes of you know how could this work out? It is you know b- below the average or close to the worst outcome so many times where you you know you have to figure, you know especially with draft picks, obviously, a team that a players drafted you know can make so much difference uh, for you know players at, at almost all levels. and I, I, yeah, I think there's a good evidence that it would have been different for Ola candy if uh, it had been different. so. Uh, Moving on to the early 2000s, uh, the the, the 99 and 2000 are very big struggles, but they do start to accumulate some intriguing young talent and some, you know, really good young players. Uh, Lamar Odom, uh, Darius Miles, um, Corey Maggette, uh, Quentin Richardson, um, you know, are all uh, key players. And in the 2001 season, they're all 21 or younger and all, you know, have some good years. Um, They improved significantly that year from 15 wins to 31 wins starting to look like uh you you know they're, they're a, a team that's kind of getting some acclaim for you know like you know a young team on the rise you know i i guess not that different from what you know the sort of the timberwolves uh, situation um has been in the uh last year no one I, who i think is quite was as touted as carl anthony towns but you know not not too far uh you know away from that the, the you know 2001 or so clippers uh, had a lot of
1: uh, hype during that time. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, again, I think that's sort of a credit to Elgin that he did a good job of, um, you know, drafting and trading for draft picks and um, and and, and co- gathering a really nice collection of, of young, talented players. Uh, and then the, the challenge is, is, as always, is then how do you then mold that team and, you know, make little tweaks as you go? Because, I mean, they probably had, a few too many players who were similar who played similar positions and things like that but i mean the the first step is to accumulate the assets and then i guess you look at you know draw uh, trading and 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 whatever to sort of build your team from there um and i mean the 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 next step that they took was was the the trade for Alton brand which was a really you know i mean I. Uh, arguably Aldrin's best move as a general manager Um, in that draft. There was a lot of um, that was the draft that had, um, you know, Kwame Brown and Tyson Chandler, uh, Eddie Curry. So, I mean, the idea that they would draft another young guy, I mean, these are guys coming out of high school, um, you know, that didn't appeal to the Clippers, but they managed to sort of flip the draft pick and and get a a very young player, someone who had already proven themselves at, at the NBA level. So, Yeah, they looked like they were ready to take the next step, really. Yeah,
0: and Brand, you know, had uncommon maturity and um, you know, was someone who you could definitely count on and like it was only 2 years out of uh from being rookie of the year. So he was yeah, I mean, he was young enough where it was absolutely a smart call but you know, made sense with their uh, talent. They improved to uh 39 wins in the O2 season and, and things are looking up and they make what seems like a savvy trade uh trading away uh, Darius Miles for Andre Miller, another you know, fairly young mid 20s player. Who um, you know was you know uh, we have to know Andre Miller you know a smart point guard a guy who you know made teams better for a lot of his uh, career even though didn't necessarily have flashy numbers Um, but that's another situation where there are you know incredible number of um, you know contract years on that team. In 03, Lamar Odom has had, you know, some personal problems and during this time, some, uh, some drug suspensions and other issues and, um, and it really seems to fall apart uh that year they they regress only winning uh 27 games and you know the end of alvin gentry's time as the uh, clippers coach dennis johnson comes in as the interim coach toward the end of the season as well but that's a uh, that's a, that that kind of ended that run for the clippers although they you know emerged fairly quickly with some of that talent into big bigger and better things but that was uh uh, that that that's sort of your, where you look and you wonder, you know, what must have happened there. I I, I think you you know the book you attribute it to you know the fact that again that so many young players on contract years and just you know are kind of torn apart from those goals. But that that's sort of a um that, that's a baffling one looking at it from the outside.
1: Yeah, uh, the the trade for Andre Miller. was one of those moves jason that people you know at the time you looked at and you said yep this is the perfect move now that's that's the next thing you know they they definitely whilst darius was very popular um both with the fans and with his teammates i mean history would suggest they made the right move in trading him away um and and they they clearly had a a surplus of, of forwards i mean they had they already had Elton Brand, they had Lamar Odom, they had Corey Maggetti who was playing um, a lo- you know, little bit at the two spot but also playing at the three spot so they clearly were able to trade um, Darius away and, and Andre Miller seemed to be a great fit. He was He was from California as you said, you know he was regarded as one of the best young point guards in the league. He 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 led the NBA in assists during the previous season and had played for Team USA over the summer of 2002, um, which wasn't a happy time. But but you know he was selected as one of the 12 players to represent the country. So um, and and I. I I think the Clippers kind of modeled that on what New Jersey had done twelve months earlier in trading for Jason Kidd. Uh then they saw that like, okay, here New Jersey have taken, you know, another franchise that's traditionally struggled, um, had some nice young talent and uh, you know, a nice sort of mix of athletic players and you know, um and then they, they went and acquired Jason Kidd and sort of completely turned their franchise around. And I think the Clippers were hoping for the same outcome by acquiring Andre Miller, but it was a train wreck. It was, you know, um, Andre Miller was very unhappy being there and, um, you know, there was a lot of sort of internal squabbling and there's so many players heading into free agency and, and, and responsibility on that has to go back to the ownership of the team. But they had the option of signing up some of these players before the season. Even if they had signed them up as a sort of show of good faith to to let the other players on the team know that, hey, there's a pot there's a potential here that if we do the right thing and we play well, we'll be financially rewarded but they chose to let them all sort of uh, dangle into free agency and um, the outcome was pretty bad. Mm -hmm. So, um, now we begin the Dunleavy era and the
0: uh, first year uh, that you still have Brand and McGetty and Quentin Richardson uh, they start 22 and 25 but then they finish 28 and 54 which is a, quite an amazing uh, drop off in that second year but um, they are accumulating uh, some talent they uh, they get Chris Kamen they get uh, Sean Livingston who's you know an exciting young uh, point guard for them uh, they have Marco Yarek who looks at the time, like, he might be, you know, he, he's showing some um, nice things, and he eventually would be uh, sent to uh, Minnesota to get Sam Cassell. So, you know, they're starting to, um, you know, they're, they're starting to kind of make that, getting close to, you know, the run that they would make in 2006. But there's also you know um Mike Dunleavy comes in and there's a strange situation um where he is told by Donald Sterling that he is you know given some or full authority over player personnel while Elgin Baylor is the general manager and and not told about the situation and that that seems to lead to some um You you know, some conflict and some difficulties, um, you know, later on, especially,
1: yeah. And, and, um, I mean, like, and obviously that would lead to and uh, lead to conflict down the road. But, you know, Donald seemed to be wowed by Mike Dunleavy and 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 believed that he was the person who could turn the franchise around. So he essentially handed him the the keys and said, you know, you're in charge, uh and it seemed that nobody thought it was a good idea to inform Elgin of what was happening. Um, and, and one of the people I spoke to, Barry Hecker, you know, he was working in the front office at the time. I think he was the director of player personnel. And he said that in the lead up, um, to the draft that they took Sean Livingston in, uh, Sean Livingston was one of the players they were looking at, but they were also um, looking at some other players. Um, and they were seriously considering drafting Devin Harris, um, and uh, in one of the meetings where they were discussing this, you know, Mike Dunleavy just announced, "Well, like I'm taking Sean Livingston," and um, you know, Barry Hecker was like, "Well, wait, is this an is this an I'm deal or is this a we deal? Like, are, are you are you working with us? Is this a team that we're deciding together, or, or are you deciding?" And you know, that was maybe the first glimpse into what was going to later become a, a bigger problem, uh, whereby you had two different camps thinking they were running the show. Um, and that was, that had been orchestrated by Donald.
0: So the 06 team, um, as you mentioned, they add Sam Cassell, they add Katino Mobley. Uh, they eventually add um, Vladimir Rodmanovich, Rad- and um, they are 47 and 35. They, you know, have, have the real, you know, first real strong team in more than a decade. And, you know, <laughs> um, and, and, this is um you know they they advanced to the uh second round for the first time since they have been the clippers um but it, it's interesting like even though you know, there's so much success in the season there's so many good vibes there's this weird situation with the nba seeding rules at the time where they just gone to six divisions and the uh if you won your division you automatically were given a top 3 seed um so the uh, so they were it was advantageous for them to tank to finish sixth in the West and to meet the third seeded Nuggets who were um a worse team and who they would have had home court advantage on. So even though they you know it, it, and it leads to this like farcical last game of the uh, season against the uh, Grizzlies who they are, are competing with uh, to for the fifth the, the winner gets the fifth seed the loser gets the sixth seed and you know. it, it it comes to the point where they are basically coming really, really close, if not actually, uh, you know, playing the game to uh, uh, to lose. And, and it, it, it was smart of them to do that. And obviously just, you know, weird uh, incentives for them to do. But,
1: you know, they they have to kind of clippers their way into the playoffs, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Yeah. Really fascinating. I, I don't think i um... I think you can almost guarantee that 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 game against Memphis will uh against the Grizzlies will um will never appear on uh, NBA Hardwood Classics. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think it's saying that the league would want to highlight, but I mean, you can't blame the, the Clippers. They, were, they had the situation where the, the two best teams in the West were both the Texas teams, and, and so Dallas and San Antonio, one was going to finish number one in the West, but whoever didn't win the Midwest division was going to drop all the way to number four. So if the Clippers finished number five, they were going to end up playing a much tougher opponent. So it was in their interest to to tank and to deliberately lose, which which they did. Um, well, I mean, I can't say which they did, which it appears they did. I mean, and and even the comments from the players at the time reflect the fact that they were well aware of the seeding situation. Um, but it, it worked in their favor because they got the matchup they wanted against Denver and they played very well against Denver and they broke through and finally won um, their first playoff series as the Clippers. So, I mean, it, it definitely worked in their favor.
0: Yeah, and that second round series against the uh, Suns, you know, there, there's some real classics um, in that series. I mean, the um, you know, there's a double overtime game in Game 5. There's some... Um, uh, you know, the, the, there were, you know, some really uh, tense uh, moments there. Game three is really exciting. You know, the the, the last game, unfortunately, for the uh, Clippers, the game seven was not a particularly close game, even though Elton Brand, you know, had 36 points and you know, played really well throughout that entire series. And so, you, some of the strategic, um, you know, um, changes between the coaches you know with uh uh you know the the Clippers creating a situation where Nash can't hide on you know Quentin Ross who was a good defensive player but not doing much offensively where he had to guard someone who was effective and just the you know the chess match between Mike D'Antoni and Mike Dunleavy you know some fascinating aspects about that series I mean and you know they came really close to um you know, to to beating the Clippers there. I mean, they are, excuse me, to beating the Suns in that series. I mean, that was a really um, uh, tough series. And, you know, they, they certainly had a, you know, it looked like this was a team that was, you know, had some growth potential. Um, you know, most of their main players were still in their mid twenties. They had, you know, their young stud point guard of the future, Sean Livingston, who was only twenty years old and was playing really well in uh, limited minutes, just you know, kind of showing what he uh, could do. And um, and then uh, and then they end up getting a uh, they they signed Tim Thomas, who had an amazing playoff run for the suns and had shown you know, some really good signs at times of being an excellent player. And I, I believe basically brought everyone else back and it looked like they were, you know, going to have another chance to be, you know, to, you know, build a momentum and, and be a really good team. And then unfortunately, you know, um, more, uh, tragedy struck the team.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, I think the series against the Suns was a really fascinating one, and and maybe a decade ahead of its time in terms of the the style of play between the two teams. Um, A lot of sort of smaller lineups, and a lot of um, you know making sure that you had you know four players on the court at all time that could shoot the three pointer, and and you know the trade to get uh, Vladimir Radmanovic in the middle of the season was really crucial to the style of basketball that Dunleavy wanted to play. Um, and they did look, I mean that, that year, 2006, the, the Miami won the championship and I think that they won 50 or 52 regular season games that year. Um, so that was a year that maybe the, the championship was a little bit up for grabs. Um, and the Clippers were, you know, a couple of, couple of seconds away from, from potentially winning that series. And they were, as you said, Jason, they look positioned to be ready now for some real, long-term sustained improvement. They had a nice nucleus of young players. And, you know, whilst Cassell was on his way out and he was a crucial player on that team, you know, Sean Livingston um, appeared to be ready to step in and to, you know, become an all-star caliber player. And then, you know, in in two successive years, you had Sean Livingston uh, suffer, you know, the the most horrendous injury that's ever taken place on an NBA court and then, you know, a few months later in the off season, you have Elton Brand get injured whilst he's playing one on one with Chris Kamen. and essentially there goes your, you know, your, your, your the two players you're building around
0: and leads of course to another transition era for the team uh you know brand was able to come back at the end of the 08 season and play pretty well and show that okay you know maybe he'll be back to form and um you know there we can go um along with him and they also have cap space and they have the opportunity to Signed Baron Davis to go along with Elton Brand, and um, there, there, as you write in the book, there are differences of opinion of exactly what went down. But Baron Davis thought that Elton Brand was coming back. Mike Dunleavy thought that Elton Brand was coming back. Um, but Elton Brand uh, signed elsewhere with the Seventy Sixers and left the Clippers to um, to scramble again.
1: Yeah, so you know, you had this situation where. One of the things that Alton's um, um, agent was saying that you know that they wanted to see the Clippers go out and and, and secure a uh, all star caliber point guard and, and Baron Davis was um, you know similar to when Marcus Johnson returned home you know here's Baron Davis you know someone that was really loved in Los Angeles you know grew up um, in South Central and 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 played his college ball at UCLA and. Uh, had gone on to be an NBA All-Star and, and one of the sort of most popular players in the league. Um, and so, you know, the Clippers were able to go out and they were able to sign him and there was all this excitement around signing him. And for a couple of days, it was like, well, we've got Barron, we're about to re-sign Elton. This team's ready to take off again. Um, the, problem, the problem was that, you know when when Mike Dunleavy talks about you know how he felt that Baron uh, that Alton Brand had made a commitment to to resign, they were negotiating directly. You know um, Mike Dunleavy speaking directly to Elton Brand, and they weren't communicating through his agent. And once David Falk, who's um, was Elton's agent, discovered that that was taking place, you know he said stop. You know no more communication with them. Let me do my job. And he went out and he secured a a better deal for Elton and Elton left. So
0: the um, and and I'm not sure, you know, given that Baron Davis was, you know, in a bit of a decline phase in his career. And Elton Brand, he was still a good player for a while, but was not, you know, the the same player he would have been. I'm not sure that that was going to necessarily lead the Clippers into the promised land anyway. But obviously, uh, you know, disappointing that they didn't have a chance to put that together. And 09 is kind of a lost year. Um, You know, uh, they they do trade for Zach Randolph, who unfortunately was uh, still in the midst of a rough transition uh, phase of his career before he would find his home in uh, Memphis. Uh, they end up um, finishing 19 and 63, but they are able to um, uh, they are able to get uh, Blake Griffin with the uh, number one pick. Obviously, the exciting new star there but i i one thing i should mention before that is the uh a a really big move um i I actually i think was during that same summer where they were uh with with baron davis and elton brand is um elgin baylor uh leaves the organization after you know a, a 23 or so years with the uh with the team and it's sort of unclear what um It was unclear at the time exactly what had happened other than, you know, it was just announced that Dunleavy was given uh, the general manager duties Um, and uh, then Baylor later files a huge lawsuit against the team and against the NBA for – um you know racial discrimination and for you know uh, other things you know revealing um a lot of uh you know embarrassing things that Donald Sterling had said and a lot of you know mistreatment that he alleged and you know all these um you know giving a hint of what it was like to uh you
1: know work under Donald Sterling for all those years yeah and um you know, he he spoke. One of the one of the more interesting thing was, uh, you know, like ha- financially, you know, what he was being paid relative to other NBA general managers, which was, you know, like a, a, I think his final year he was on under four hundred thousand. Which, I mean, I'm, I'm for you or I that might be a, a great salary, but I mean, for any, for an NBA general manager, it was well below what the market rate was, and there was part of the. Um, process of filing the lawsuit there was a whole lot of allegations that were made of things that were said um you know racially insensitive comments and um some things that were just yeah that would just blow your mind um to hear said in a professional setting in a workplace um or it's you know to be said anywhere um but ultimately, nothing comes of this. You know, the, the racial the racial element of the lawsuit was eventually dropped and it ended up being a, primarily dealt with on the basis of whether he was discriminated against on the basis of his age. Um, and, uh, you know, the jury found in favour of the Clippers and, and Aldrin lost his lawsuit and it wasn't until sort of years later when the, um, the tape was leaf, leaked, uh, the V Stiviano tape was leaked in 2014, that a lot of this... Uh, focus came back on what happened with Elgin Baylor um, when he was terminated as general manager.
0: So as we mentioned, Blake Griffin is drafted, but he misses the 2010 season with injury. Mike Dunleavy quits as the coach to become general manager to focus on those duties, but ends up getting fired after the season um, anyway. Um, So we we begin a new era with... um, Vinny Dal Negro as the coach in 2011. Baron Davis is traded uh, out of the team. Uh, Mo Williams comes in. It's mostly a salary-related trade. And um, there is a first-round draft pick attached to it, which is not necessarily thought of uh, much at the time. The Clippers are... Uh, 30-52, you know, not a, not, not a good team, but not one of the worst teams in the league. But suddenly that ends up, uh, becoming the, uh, number one pick and the, uh, the Clippers end up, uh, giving the Cavs a, a number one pick and what was essentially a salary dump. So, uh, another frustrating situation for the, uh, franchise and kind of the, uh, the, the last, um, you know, really, um, uh, The last thing you might think of as far as the Clippers curse goes uh, until the the good times really start rolling in for the team.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, that's I mean, any other franchise that 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 draft pick ends up becoming Kyrie Irving. I mean, any other franchise, that would be something that would be thought about and spoke about to this day. But with the Clippers, it's just one of you know many sort of things that have happened to the team over the years. Um, I believe at the time that the team tried to justify it by saying that they couldn't place protection on the first round draft pick because of other trades they had, other trades they had made in the past. And I mean, I'm not a, um, a collective bargaining agreement expert, um, but there's no doubt that it was a it was a um, a bad trade. However, I mean, if, if if that trade hadn't have happened and they had a drafted Kyrie, I mean, they probably don't end up you know, completing the trade for Chris Paul. Um, so, you know, in hindsight, maybe it worked out for them, but you know, it's, it's one of the. I mean, it's maybe like the Danny Ferry trade, you know, they, they, they drafted Danny Ferry, which was a, which was a bad move. I mean, history shows Danny Ferry was not a very good number two draft pick, but, you know, they end up trading him for Ron Harper and then they get a draft pick that turns into Lloyd Voigt. So maybe it's one of those situations that um, in in the short term, it was a bad move. But in the long term, it kind of all worked out for them.
0: Yeah, they were able to, of course, you know, the the, the next season get uh, Chris Paul in a trade, uh, uh, giving up Eric Gordon in that trade and uh, beginning the Lob City era for the uh, Cavs with uh, Blake Griffin and emerging DeAndre Jordan and the the, the Uh, the Clippers have been a very good team uh, since then over the uh, past five seasons and continuing into uh, this season. You know, they've been a, you know, a 50-plus win team um, all of those seasons. And, um, you know, really are, um, you know, they they certainly had their disappointments in the playoffs and they had, uh, you know, the Donald Sterling scandal in 2014 when those, you know, tapes came to light and he was forced out as the owner of the team but you know they have been a you know largely a very good organization but it's interesting because i feel like you know whenever they do something that um you know would happen to a you know that that would happen to a good team like blowing the 3-1 lead to the Rockets in the second round in 2015 after, you know, that great 7-game series in the first round against the Spurs or, you know, losing to the Blazers in the in the first round in 2016 after, you know, Paul and, and Blake both had injuries, it's still viewed for this same prism a lot of ways as, oh, it's the same old Clippers. You know, even though they've done so much to, you know, become a better team, especially, you know, as as Doc Rivers had was hired and, you know, um and Steve Ballmer has you know become the new owner and they, and they have changed a lot about what they do and their you know much more professional organization I think in basically every facet. You know, they certainly make their mistakes, but they generally make the kind of mistakes that a good team makes and so that every team makes, not the kind of you know mistakes that were, you know, holding them back, you know, under Donald Sterling's ownership for so many years.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I guess the the counter to that would be if you look at, so there's been two completed seasons since since Steve Barmer purchased the team. A a, a team losing a series when they're up 3-1 is an extremely rare occurrence. And the fact that they were up 3-1 and then in game six they had a a giant lead. And Houston had essentially, you know, pulled all their starters out. And here's Josh Smith, you know, The guy who's renowned for being a bad, you know, there's one thing people know about Josh Smith is the guy loves jacking up threes and he can't shoot threes. And all of a sudden Josh Smith shoots Houston to victory. I mean, that's kind of, um, that's a tough, I mean, I've spoken with since the book's been published, you know, speak to a lot of Clipper fans, um, you know, who connect via social media and everything. And yeah, that's something that the fans of the team just fight found. So such a bitter pill to swallow. And then the following season to have their two superstar players get injured in the same playoff game. Again, you know, like you'd have to go back very far through NBA history to find more than, and I I can't, I can't think of the top of my head of another example of a team losing two, their best two players in the same playoff game. Um, and as we said at the start, I don't think there is a curse, but you know, there's so much, so much misfortune that's happened to this team over such a long period of time, and and it has it has preceded Donald's ownership of the team, uh, you know, Bill Walton's injury troubles happened under Irv Levin's ownership, and and it has continued uh, after Steve Ballmer's purchased the team, so. Um, I mean, I, I look forward to. I thought this season when they started off fourteen and two, you know, I was really optimistic that this was going to be the year that they um, surpassed all their expectations and made it through to the finals. And I think they're potentially a, a, still a championship contender. But then, you know, you've had injuries to Paul and Griffin again, um, and it just is just kind of like Groundhog Day. So. What team
0: today, in your view, is most like Donald Sterling's
1: Clippers? <laughs> well, I mean, given the events of All-Star Weekend, uh, you know, you'd have to say Sacramento. Um, you know, the trading way to Marcus Cousins in the way that they did it is – is is. Um, it, again it, it, you know we, we were speaking before about the you know the, the when the clippers trade away McDice, and and this this reminds me of that you know um uh, i mean i could see the motivation for trading him away i mean he's been there for six years and you know they've never made the playoffs and um, and there's been so many sort of cultural problems around the team that are linked directly to Demarcus cousins and, and the, the Marcus Demarcus cousins demeanor and the way he approaches the game so I could see the motivation for trading him I can't I, I can't make sense of the trade and what the thinking is and what they're trying to do Um and it's one example of a number of sort of bad moves that that Sacramento have made over the past few years. Um, and I imagine that the, what the, uh, Clippers fan base experienced in the sort of, uh, you know, mid nineties would be very similar to what the Sacramento fan base are experiencing now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the Knicks are also, you know, under James Dolan's leadership of the past 16 years or so is, that that's a similar one where I think um Dolan just shares a lot of personality traits with um Donald Sterling. Really. maybe not the vile racism, but the um just eccentric you know personal decisions meddling in things um not necessarily being cheap with the franchise because they they make so much money although there there's definitely you know talk of um. That there need to be controlling in in these atmospheres, and them, you know, really um, sometimes being invasive in players' personals, you know. Um just not allowing any kind of privacy or that, or just, you, I, I do feel like there's a culture within the Knicks, within, maybe has never been as bad as, as the Clippers, but I feel like there's some similarities. Um, and as you talked about with the um, always trying to, you know, kind of get the big fish and rather than building the team organically for m- many of the Clippers um years, that has been sort of a, you know, atmosphere there. I, I guess the only other one would be the Timberwolves just because they have not made the playoffs in, 12, 13 seasons, and um, you know there, there were some real lows under the uh, David Kahn era. They, they seem to have been a better run uh, franchise under you know Flip uh, Saunders until he passed away, and now under uh, Thibodeau. But th- th- I think yeah, th- those are probably the closest comparisons I can think of. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think they're both good comparisons. I think the Knicks one's really interesting. Um, you know, the, the Knicks. I mean, the, the the James Dolan Knicks. If there's any, they they kind of have. There's a lot of similarities, like especially if you think about um, scandals as well. You think about what happened with Isaiah Thomas and you know disputes with coaches and all sorts of stuff. Um, so there's there's that link. But the Knicks, in in, in in another way, I mean, their biggest problem has been that they've been too willing to spend money, which is which is the opposite to the Clippers. You know, if they had a tighter budget um, and they and they were less inclined to go and chase. You know um, you know you yokim Noah's and you're like you know there I mean there's been countless examples of them um, you know grabbing players at the end of their careers at the the per, just the wrong time to grab that player um, and spending a lot of money and then being locked into you know, going all the way back to Alan Houston, you know, being locked into this huge salary for someone who's not really worthy of that salary and then, and then, and then compounding the error by bringing in other big name players and, you know, they're almost like a, a, um, a kid running a fantasy team where they're just going for name players as opposed to looking at different parts and how they'll fit together and, and what actually goes into making a successful team.
0: So, um, last question, unless there's anything else you want to share after that, um, who is your favorite clipper of all time?
1: That's a great question. Favorite clipper of all time. Um, look, as a fan, I think, um, and you know, I don't want to go personal with people that I interviewed, but it just is tr- as strictly as a fan, I think my favorite clipper of all time is Derek Smith, who we spoke about a lot earlier. Um, and you know, obviously, um, Derek sadly passed away. Um, and so I wasn't able to speak with Derek for the book, spoke with a lot of his former teammates and coaches and, you know, everybody that I spoke to, um, just said that as a, as a man, as a human being, that he was such a wonderful person. And, um, yeah, just the the NBA world is sadder for having lost Derek. And I think that, um, you know his his life story was so interesting um but yeah he he's he's my favorite clipper of all time yeah
0: like i said it is a fantastic book i highly recommend for um you know if you're you're serious enough nba fan to be listening to our podcast you will definitely enjoy the book so you should uh You should absolutely certainly check it out. It is again called The Curse, The Colorful and Chaotic History of the LA Clippers. We'll have a link to it in the show notes for you to be able to uh, buy the book. So um, Mick, thank you so much for being on the show and thank you everyone for checking us out. You can find us at the stepback at fansided.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search for Over and Back. And you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So thanks for listening, and we'll back again soon.